Our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our, bro- and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God, thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you, therefore do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Thank you, Michael. It's good to stand, isn't it, to hear the word of God reminding us of its importance. Well, if ever our church needed an experience of God's power, it's now. If, any, if ever our church needed God's wisdom, it's now. Uh, maybe you, you're thinking, I don't think I've ever lived through a period like this in my church life. Neither have I. Neither have most of us. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, our church has gone through a period of resignation, allegation, investigation, supplication, deliberation, adjudication, all of which has been very painful. And maybe you've asked what has happened to Christ's body here and how has Satan so worked to weaken that which is good. Uh, if ever there was a time when we needed God's power or God's wisdom, it seems to me now is the time. Uh, we need more than a physical healing. We need God's power to realise something much greater than a physical healing, that is relational healing. Uh, we need wisdom to know how to work together in trust, to bind what has been broken and to bring reconciliation. But the good news is that God cares for our church and he has told us how he will do it. And he is speaking to us right now through his word, by his spirit who inspired these words and is at work in us to, to take them on board and to be transformed by them. Because the Lord wants to pastor us through this. I want you to realize this, the Lord is our pastor. He's our shepherd and he's pastoring us. And so I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Will you do it? Our loving Father in heaven, we place ourselves under you and we trust you and we believe that your church is precious to you because Christ died for it. And loving Father, please pastor us now. Pastor me now. Pastor all of us now. Help us to listen and to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll see an outline of where we're going in the leaflet, which may be helpful. It really is helpful to have a Bible open in front of you. So if you haven't got a Bible and you would like one, stick up your hand. Someone will try and find them. Just put your hand straight up till you get one. Okay. The first thing that God is telling us through 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is that he will get us through this. I want you to hear it. He will get us through it. I want you to see who writes this letter and who it's addressed to. Look at verse 1. Paul, 
called to be an apostle by Christ Jesus, by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth. And then it says, together with all those everywhere, call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Who's writing this letter? Paul, called to be an apostle. That means someone who comes with the authority of the risen Jesus himself and speaks the mind of Jesus. This is not just a role that Paul assumed for himself. He became an apostle by the will of God when Jesus literally stopped him in his tracks on the Damascus Road, converted him spectacularly and commissioned him as his apostle. It didn't happen like that to anyone else. That means that Paul and the Corinthian church, like it or not, have a special relationship. He is their apostle. He is Jesus' spokesman to them. And he's the apostle of the Gentiles, which means us. So that's who wrote the letter. Who's it written to? Obviously the Corinthian church, but not just them. Look at, uh, where is it, verse 1. To all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's us, isn't it? That's us. So that puts Paul in a unique God-given relationship with us to help us in our current needs. And God has preserved this letter so that through the Spirit, he can pastor us through this. Okay. Because we, of course, have a lot in common with Corinth. Sometimes, you know, you can see problems in your church and think, if only we could go back to New Testament times. Oh, wouldn't that be good? When it was nice and rosy and everyone got on. Actually, things weren't rosy back then. (laughs) The church had its issues. The Corinthian church. Here's a church that's divided. There were power plays. Added to that, there was gross sexual immorality going on and permitted and tolerated. There was idolatry. There was false teaching. It was a church loaded with issues, and yet it was precious to God, and God pastored them through. So here's the question. If the Corinthian church had so many issues, in the first nine verses, why is Paul so positive? I don't know if you picked that up. He's unbelievably positive. He says... They've been sanctified, verse 4. He's always thanking God for them. Verse 5, they've been enriched in every way. Verse 7, they don't lack any spiritual gift. Verse 8, they'll be blameless on the day of Christ. Really? Paul, are you blind? Do you know the church that you're talking about? Uh, With factions and worldliness and immorality and false teaching? You know, is Paul just putting on some kind of rose-coloured glasses and having a fake sense of optimism? a false Christian piety? Or is it just a bad apostolic joke? What's going on? He says, no, I always thank God for you. Not because of you, not because of your natural giftedness, your sophisticated philosophical thinking, your innate charisma, but because of what you have in Christ Jesus. They were really into names, who they follow. Well, guess what? Nine times in nine verses, the name Christ Jesus is mentioned. That's significant because in verse 12, of course, other names are claimed as important. They're not important. The reason for Paul's Paul's optimism is the true power in the one name that counts, and that is Christ Jesus. And the point of what he's saying is that in Christ Jesus, they already have, we in fact already have what we most need. Okay, so here's God pastoring us, right? What do we need to get through this? 
Well, we need to be made clean, all of us. We need to be washed. We need to be made useful to God. And this has happened, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and then called to be holy, his holy people. Now, usually we think of sanctification, if we've been taught, as this ongoing sort of process of God working in us to refine us. Here, he's using the same term, but he's speaking of it as already having happened. The work of God that God does in us when we first trust in Jesus, at that point, he washes us and he sets us apart in Christ Jesus to be useful for him. So he's saying, you've been sanctified. And then he says, you've been now called to live it out. So live out that which you are. You're called to be his holy people. We're called to live as who he has already made us to be in Christ. Now that tells us we know who we are and we know why we live. We live to be useful for God. And then there's verse 3, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this this occurs in many of Paul's letters, in his opening statements. It's usually something we gloss over, but here it's really central. We'd be wrong to gloss over it. Paul doesn't. He goes on, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. You know, God's grace that he's given us and peace are the heart of all that we have in Christ. And that's exactly what we need. What do we need to get through our time as a church? Well, we need grace. Of course, yes, in how we relate to one another, but also that deeper, fresh, collective awareness that God has treated us not how we deserve. He hasn't treated us like that. He's shown immense kindness to us in overlooking sins. And when we understand this, well, of course, we'll have the other thing we need, and that's peace. Peace in our relationships. Peace, which means forgiveness. Peace, which means reconciliation with God and each other. So that even if, you've, if we've parted ways, there's a, there's a deep reality of our relationship together which trumps whatever disagreement or differences we may fall out over because we are in Christ and God has joined us together. The grace of God brings a relational depth that runs very deep. And then there's God's grace to us in Christ Jesus. It also gives us the tools we need to get through. When Christians have relational tension, we need to know how to speak to one another, don't we? what to say and how to say it. And that's what God gives us, verse 5. In him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. That knowledge, that wisdom is the wisdom of grace. Now, so then, do we need expert counsellors or mediators here? Well, of course, they're skilled, they can be helpful. But let's not presume that we don't have what it already what's already required. He says, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Uh, This has just been so impressed upon me recently um, with the leadership team. And 
I have seen Greg and Angie and Beck uh, use their gifts that God has given them, in its, given, a, given to them in service of us as a church. I've lost count of how many meetings we've had and I've lost count of how many sleepless nights, the meetings that went into the morning, uh, the tears shed, the immense amount of prayer um, given up. It's like they were working two full-time jobs. And we need to honour our leaders who've served us so well. It's been massive. It's taken a huge toll. But they did it because they're modelling Christ. Um, you know, Greg and Beck with this long history and, and deep compassion and commitment to our church. Angie, of course, uh, who has all that. And then, you know, here's God's sovereignty in the whole situation. You know, just she's voted on to the leadership team 10 days before everything sort of blew up. And then, <laughs> um, but she's just finishing her graduate diploma in corporate governance just then. Well, there's God sort of lining up the right person to be in the right place at the right time years in advance. God is in it. What God is reminding us of is that he will get us through. In fact, he tells us, he says, he will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blameless. Did you hear that? He tells, says it of the Corinthian church. Think of all their issues. He says, you'll be blameless. Really? Blameless. He says it of us, of our church. We're going to be blameless on the day of Jesus. How? How's he going to do it? You know, none of us are perfect. Who among us is without blame? Not me. Okay. How will God make us blameless? Hold on to that question. For now, it's enough to know the answer lies not in ourselves, but in God, who, verse 9, we're told, God, the answer is God is faithful. It's not that we're great, it's God is faithful. He's going to do it. We will be blameless, not because of us, but because of God. Now, you see how God's pastoring us. What he's doing here is he's calling us to trust him and to believe that he has our church in his hand. And I know he's talking about us together because he's the one who, verse 9, has called you, meaning us collectively, into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's the deep reality. What will get us through isn't, frankly, it isn't better systems, although we will keep working on them and they can help. What will get us through is that in Christ Jesus we, have, we already have that which we deeply need. We have fellowship not just individual fellowship with Jesus, that's a Corinthian mistake to think like that, but we have fellowship with one another with Jesus Christ our Lord. Fellowship together with Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the sense of the word. In other words, our relationship with God isn't isolated from the fellowship in Christ we have with one another. You can't have relationship with Christ which ignores the fellowship of Christ's body, whom he identifies with. So we have fellowship with Christ together, and that's what he's brought us into. So there's the foundation. In Christ we have already that which we most need. What a relief. 
You encouraged? I hope you are. Well, from here now, God pastors us specifically on our issues. I want you to strap on your seatbelt because here we go. Here's the appeal, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions amongst you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So here is the Lord through his apostle telling us that in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, that our, un, our unity in Christ must be lived out in our church relationships. It must find expression. It cannot just be theoretical or mystical. It has to have legs. It has to be expressed in how we relate. He says, agree with one another in what you say. Don't have divisions among you. Be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, is that saying there's no room for any disagreement ever? Is that saying there's no room for any difference of opinion? Is that saying that anyone who thinks differently has to be kicked out because we're really like a cult? No, because he explains there's a particular disunity that can be genuinely divisive, and he talks about it. He says, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Paulus. Another, I follow Cephas, that's Peter. Still another, I follow Christ. So what's this? This is a division which seems, sees our spirituality with Jesus, sort of individually, um, but through a, a leader at the exclusion of the rest of Christ's body. It's a division which clusters around a particular identity, a particular giftedness perhaps, a particular knowledge that one leader will have over another. Now, could that happen in our church? What do you think? Instead of saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, you put the names in. I follow, I follow, I follow. What names did you put in, I wonder? Don't say them out loud. Well, if you put in mine, that's entirely wrong. That's entirely wrong. As is any other name. We see how wrong it is in the list that was given Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Christ. Did you notice how Christ is mentioned just as one of the equals? Like as if he's just on the same level as the others? Can you believe that? That, that, is, that is blasphemous. Because it's dethroning Christ who is Lord of all. He's the one we follow. But to put him on the same level and say, I follow another person and, you know, well, I follow Christ. That, that is non-Christian. <laughs> um, of course, we can support leaders. That's different to saying, I'm a disciple of them. You know, I obey them in everything. Of course not. To say we follow any person who is not Jesus is to create factions. It's to elevate people. It's to bring Christ down. It's to not deny him as Lord over all who believe. That destroys fellowship with Christ. That divides Christ's body. That is not to be. And it cannot be, it must not be. Why, why must not it be? Because you cannot butcher Christ. In verse 13, when Paul asks, is Christ divided? It's the same word for butchered. Back in February, the men um, had a men's night at uh, Mount Barker where we saw a butcher cutting up a lamb's carcass. 
Now, for those of you who are squeamish and vegetarian, this is just like terrible. But, you know, for the rest of us, it was pretty interesting. And, you know, I'm one of those guys. I've never seen a butcher use a hacksaw, you know, to go through, dividing it up. Okay. It was pretty, it was pretty good. Um, I thought, anyway, forgive me if you're of different persuasion. All right. <laughs> um, okay. You can't do that to Christ. He's the resurrected Lord. He was butchered once. He cannot be butchered again. He is incapable of being hacksawed apart into rival factions. You cannot do it to the one who's Lord of the universe. It would be ludicrous, therefore, to divide around human leaders because they haven't, what, they haven't been crucified for anyone. You know, people aren't baptised into their names. And so we've got to be really careful when we so elevate one leader and to be the rallying point um, for people that we lose sight of Christ and we only see the leader. That's how cults start. Paul says, I didn't come to be a rallying point. No one was baptised in my name. In fact, I can't really remember who, was, who I baptised while I was with you. I mean, there was Crispus and Gaius. There was the household of Stephanus. I can't... Well, I just forget. Because who I baptise is not the point. Because Christ didn't send me to baptise. He sent me to preach the gospel. Not with, you know, Greek wisdom and eloquence. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And now, brothers and sisters, now we get to the nub. In the face of division within Christ's body, division which threatens to sever bonds of fellowship, division over which leaders are being elevated and followed and some aren't, division that seems so deep, where is the power of God? Where is the wisdom of God to get us through? Verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the message of the cross. Now, Paul is not changing tack here. He's not moving on to a new subject. Verse 18 begins with the word for. He's explaining, right? He's, he's trying to unpack his argument, and he's coming to the crunch. He's answering the issue of how God is going to bring us through division. He does it through the message of the cross, and this is God's power. People, of course, who are perishing don't get it. You know, you really, you Christians, you're really into a crucified man on a cross, naked, strung up? That's what you're into? I mean, how gross is that? How pathetic is that? How pitiful? How laughable? How weak. There's lots of times I've gone into um, public schools at Easter time and run um, assemblies, you know, for, for kids. And, you know, I'm telling the story of the cross using whatever I can, you know, to tell it. But you can see the teachers, some of the teachers at the back, and they're thinking on their faces. You can read their thoughts. You have one chance to teach about God, about love. What do you do? You tell about, tell about a, a guy strung up on a cross. That's not just laughable, it's sick, and it shouldn't be done in a school. That's kind of the thought. It's foolish, they think. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Because in the cross, we see so clearly God's love for us, for sinners, deep sinners, colliding with his hatred for sin. 
It comes together at the cross. The message of the cross is where we grasp God's immense commitment that it took to save us from judgment because he himself stepped in to take, a, to take that judgment for us upon himself. That is how God saves us. And lots, lots, of he, lots of people here know it. And if you don't, you know, talk to the person who brought you to explain this to you because it's the heart of what Christians believe. And suddenly, you know, we see that it's through the cross that he bonds us together with one another because uh, we're all sinners saved by grace. And it's through the cross that he gives us grace towards one another. It's through the cross that he creates fellowship one with another, with everyone whom he saves. That is the power of God. Power in Christ to knit people together so deeply in fellowship with him and his son, fellowship so deep, so real, that it will, in the end, overcome conflict and, you know, um, it, it will trump um, any pull on the fabric of fellowship because of disagreement or allegiance. The tapestry cannot be pulled apart, is what I'm saying. Now, worldly wisdom cannot do that, be it sophisticated philosophy or the latest steps in positive thinking or conflict resolution. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Save, of course, meaning to save from God's final judgment, but also to preserve the fellowship of believers in the fellowship of the Son. Well, how will God save those who believe? It's through the cross. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, I know about the cross. I've heard about the cross a zillion times. I want to move on from the cross. God is telling us the key to solving our church issues is not some miracle. It's not some application of worldly wisdom. It is the cross. It is nothing more than that. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. You know, what would cure us? physical miracle right in front of us. God can do that. Of course he can do that. That won't cure us. Um, astounding wisdom externally applied. They can't knit people together in fellowship with his son. The wisdom of the cross does. And so it completely overturns worldly thinking and with it human worldly arrogance. Verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. You know, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. So why did God choose you over someone else? Well, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world, the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are. Now, why? Verse 29, look, so that no one may boast in themselves before him. When I became a Christian, I was a skinny kid struggling to fit in at high school. I wasn't impressive. I still aren't. 
you know, when teams were chosen, and captains, you know, would pick who they wanted to be on their side, I wasn't the kid that got picked. I was one of the ones sort of just in the dregs, you know, if we have to have him, Joloff, come on. And yet God chose to save me, overturning worldly wisdom, because somehow when I heard the message of the cross, I realised that what God did for me was so powerful, I could never walk away from that. But here's sin at work. You see, not long after that, I remember in my arrogance thinking God would be pretty glad, should be pretty glad to have me on his team. Well, thankfully, God didn't zot me on the spot. He could have. He was merciful and allowed me to live. But what he's done is he's placed moments in my life of significant humbling where God has smashed the pride out of me to take me back to the cross, to realise my acceptance by God, my inclusion with Christ's people has nothing to do with anything special about me. It has everything to do with him. Verse 30, it's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. If you could think of three words which summarised what Jesus has become for you, what words would you choose? My guess is that they're probably not Paul's three words. That Jesus has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Yet they're the ones that Paul uses to summarise what Jesus has become for us. He gets the wisdom of the cross. We miss it. Earlier on, I asked the question, how will any of us be found blameless on the day of Christ? Well, the answer is that Christ Jesus has become for us our righteousness. When he traded places for us at the cross. It's not my righteousness or your righteousness, it's Christ's. How can our church be useful to God when we have issues like the ones we've been working through? Well, of course, it can't be useful to God, except that Christ Jesus has become for us our holiness. Holy, that word meaning to be set aside from worldly use, to be made useful in service to God. Jesus lived the life that we haven't lived. He lived the life for God that we haven't. He gives his life, that sinless, perfect, precious life, as a ransom for us on the cross to redeem us from wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good, so that in him you and I can be set free from wickedness and become useful for God, holy. He's become our holiness, through the cross. How can any of us who supposedly have been set free from sin but who still struggle, how can we possibly believe that God has a future for us? Well, we can't except that Christ Jesus, who once carried our sinful weaknesses to the cross but has now been risen from the dead, he has become our redemption. And we are in him. And he is our hope. The cross is not something to move on from. It remains for us God's power for salvation right for us now. It's how he will get us through. 
Uh, the last two months have been for me extremely humbling and massively sanctifying. I want to finish by just sharing some of my own reflections on how the cross has helped me. Um, this is not to big note myself at all. Uh, I am a sinner as much as any of you, and I know it. And my guess is you do too. Um, I'm, I'm only sharing this because I think it might be helpful to illustrate. Um, over the last two months, um, everything that I might have attached to my reputation was called into question. So, you know, when you turn up as a pastor at a new church, you, you hope you have some sort of reputation which will carry you, right? Well, well that was all taken away. Um, and my decisions were called into question and my actions and my words and my character. So it's like all the adornment or the clothes, if you like, that you might wear of self-confidence and reputation were just kind of stripped off, which left me pretty bare. And I have to confess that coming to church was I had anxiety. And I think, well, if, you know, there's been talk about this culture of fear, I didn't think our church was operating under a culture of fear, so please... If you're feeling that, come and talk to me because I don't want that to happen. But I, I think I understood maybe what people, some people had been feeling. And I thought, I'm so sorry if that's been their experience. Well, anyway, when everything's stripped away, what do you get? You've, <laughs> I realised I had everything I still needed. Jesus Christ, who is Lord of his church, powerful word of God and God's spirit at work in everyone and the cross of course which covers my sin and all of our sin and which knits us together in fellowship forged not on any personality or aptedness or giftedness but by his blood what a massive relief and so the message of the cross reminds me that God has drawn me into fellowship with people who I found difficult to stand next to, but for whom I could pray. And when I was tempted in my pride, I'm ashamed to say, to think of myself as more deserving, the cross chastened me because I remembered how Jesus, him being Lord, humbled himself. And I realised that, that gives me no right to be proud at all. And I'm ashamed to say, if I, if I was tempted to think ill will of anyone for whom Christ died, I only had to remember how Jesus prayed for those putting him to death. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I realised that instead of thinking ill will of other people, a better response would be to pray for them and myself that God would change my heart. And if I was tempted to be self-righteous, because we all try and protect ourselves, don't we? We... we we try and justify ourselves. I remembered the reason for the cross, the reason why Jesus went there for me was because I'm not righteous. It's because I'm a sinner and I'm in desperate need of God's grace. And I realised I have no grounds for any thought of self-righteousness over anyone else at all. 
So the cross is an immense leveller, you see. It brings me down and it brings all of us down to bring us up because Jesus didn't stay down, did he? He rose. He's our redemption, our hope. And the fellowship formed through having been brought down and then up in Christ means for us that we, means for me, I cannot look down on people whom God has accepted. I cannot fail to show mercy to those whom God has shown mercy. I cannot think that I don't need forgiveness either. I cannot fail to live out grace and peace which comes through the cross. And if all that requires humility, guess what? That is the way of the cross. So I want to tell you that in the cross, God has provided us with absolutely everything we need. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that's how God's pastoring us. Thank you, Father, for the message of the cross. Thank you for its saving power. Thank you for its sanctifying power. Thank you for its power to unite, to knit together in Christ fellow sinners. Thank you that through the message of the cross you will keep us strong to the end so that because of you we will be perfect and blameless on the day of Christ. Thank you that you promise to get us through because you are faithful. And we humble ourselves before you when we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.